Um, okay, um, maybe let's get started since we do have, uh, you know, we are two minutes, three minutes in, so uh, I think people will keep trickling in. Um, so um, welcome uh, to what I believe is the ninth of our Meet the Scholar sessions. Uh, my name is Asim Kaul. I'm at the University of Minnesota, and I'm a member of the SDR Executive Committee, and I'm joined today, assisted today in hosting this conversation by uh, Andrea Contigiani, who's at Ohio State and is part of our membership engagement committee. Uh, but uh, obviously our star attraction today uh, is, is Dan Leventhal, featured here with his beard, uh, but then featured on the next slide without it. Uh, so it's really been a hair-raising experience for him. Um, uh, Dan is the Reginald Ed Jones Professor of Corporate Strategy at Wharton, uh, where he's been for over 30 years now, I think. Uh, before that, he was at CMU. Uh, and before that, he got his PhD at Stanford in Economics, Business, and Public Policy with a dissertation titled Three Essays on Economic Models of Organizations, uh, which in some sense, I don't know, this is quite true, Dan, but uh, you know, previewed some of his more uh, later work by looking at search behavior and adding search behavior to agency models. Uh, Dan has received basically every award imaginable except maybe the Nobel Prize, which we're still sort of waiting on. Uh, but the, uh, he's been, uh, he was the AIB Distinguished Scholar in 2019. He's received our very own VPS Urban Educator Award, as well as the OMT Distinguished Scholar Award. He's a fellow of the Strategic Management Society and in the Academy of Management. He's earned less, no less than four honorary doctorates. Uh, and so just, you know, many, many, many awards, or so not all of which I've managed to list here, uh, uh, Dan has also done, you know, yeoman service to the profession, uh, I think most notably in my mind by founding and running strategy science uh, for the last six years, which some ways has been, I would argue, one of the most exciting developments in strategy publication in the last decade. Uh, before that, he was also editor-in-chief of organization science and department editor for strategy at management science. So, you know, uh, tremendous amount of editorial work. Uh, he's been the chair of the Wharton Management Department. I mean, he's the person I think of as the chair of the management department because all the time I was there, that was his role and, and it wasn't a short period of time. Uh, he's uh, advised uh, literally a legion of PhD students, many of whom would now qualify as distinguished scholars in their own right, people like Sandal Ethiraj, Ron Adner, Giovanni Gavetti, Felipe Sasser, Brian Wu, many, many others who I'm sure I'm uh, missing. Uh, and while doing all that, he's managed to amass, you know, a mere 88,000 citations uh, to his work uh, on organizational adaptation, technological innovation, learning, search. Really, none of these concepts, I would say none of these concepts really exist uh, without Dan's work. So, uh, very honored uh, and delighted to have you join us, Dan. Thank you so much for, for doing this. Um, before we start, uh, I'm gonna actually stop screen sharing here. Um, just a couple of quick ground rules. Uh, if everyone could keep their audio on mute, that would be great. Uh, if we if I call on you to speak, you can always unmute yourself then. We're going to do about an hour of uh, an interview with Dan uh, between Andrea and me, and then we'll open it up to questions. But in the meantime, as questions occur to you, feel free to put them in the chat function. Uh, and at the end of the, uh, after the interview, we'll come back and look at those. Uh, so with that, 
let's get started. Uh, so Dan, um, let me start with the sort of standard question. Uh, why academia? So uh, for me, it was pretty easy. I was actually sort of born into it. Uh, my father was a faculty member uh, at Stanford. He had kind of an unusual academic career, started out academic industry, went back into various roles. But um, you know, it's what all my parents' friends did. It's why wouldn't you be in academia? Uh, bright, interesting people doing interesting things. Uh, so it turns out actually I'm the youngest of four. I was the only one who did that, maybe who fully got socialized or some other inclinations. Um, but, you know, I know for many of you, you had to make this bold thing and you had to explain to your family why you're doing this and I'm going to school and then I'm staying in school. But actually, I didn't, um, that, that wasn't a struggle. I grew up in Palo Alto, California and, and so uh, it was, it was, uh, yeah, I think my father would have been happier if I like went off in physics or something or, you know, but, but I think, you know, academia broadly was, was certainly okay. Uh, okay, but so so you kind of joined the family business, as it were. <laughs> uh, but then you know you're doing this, you're you're doing a PhD in this distinguished, respectable field of economics, and then you sort of go off and join this ragtag uh, bunch yeah. of people doing strategy. What's that about? Yeah, yeah. So I that their life gets a little more slightly complicated. So like you know, don't get you know, the, the the log cabin backstory, but. I think economics appealed to me, you know, how much do I really know, but oh, formal, you know, I, I, it's mathematics and it's social science, like what could be better? That seems pretty great. So I, this is what I should study as undergrad and kind of interesting. And then as a junior, I blunder into this um, class taught by a, a new assistant professor, John Padgett in sociology. And it was an extraordinary class on, on lots of dimensions. So first, John starts out with this large amphitheater, eager people, which within two weeks, he turned into effectively a PhD seminar. One of the sort of tricks a junior faculty can do with a rather immense reading list in his kind of fairly demanding style. Um, and it was amazing quasi PhD seminar. I mean, there were like about six or eight of us who hung in as undergrads, a couple PhD students. Um, and you know, we're reading working papers by Nelson Winter. He had come from Michigan, so there's Bob Axelrod, a lot of this Carnegie stuff, you know, March and Simon, like, whoa, so I'm doing this economics and taking Howard Rafe's decision theory class, and it's kind of okay, but here's this other whole world that really seems quite interesting that has some of the, you know, I'm resonating more with. And so, you know, slowly adapted that, well, I couldn't apply to org program, I'm still a economist. So I actually almost went to Yale because, and I had my first chat with, with Sid was that they, Perspective PhD in MIT, or was a MIT, you know, do I go there and study with Nelson and Winter? And then, you know, okay, Jim, I know this Jim March guy, but oh, my, my foolish thought was that Stanford would be more accommodating. It's a business school. I can integrate my econ, you know, I thought I had a background, you know, what the hell, an undergraduate, but it seemed like I had a background. Uh, and my interest in kind of what I began to, you know, think about as org theory actually turned out to be totally wrong. So, so Stanford, John Roberts had just arrived and was forming this very high powered um, math econ group. And so that was, I'm in that and basically moonlighting with Jim. And so to give you some you know, early childhood context, you know, so Bob Wilson starts out with my dissertation advice, or, or research you know, assistantship. 
you know, a few years before me, Bob had had a guy named Van Holmstrom and then Paul Milgram. I mean, Paul, you don't know Bob Wilson, but he, rather important figure in sort of the math econ kind, kind of world. Um, and then I'm all right with Ken Arrow, you do know, and this agency stuff, and but basically moonlighting with Jim and, but going through this, this program. And so I end up with this, you generously, yeah, this dissertation, which actually could have been interesting work. Actually, Barcelona cites it. It was actually the, uh, so one essay became a, uh, that I did for Arrow and Wilson, part of their grant, this sort of survey of agency model. And then the core essay actually was actually important at the time. It was the first model that Barcelona notes and something you wrote of two-sided moral hazard. But it's, so here's a, I don't know, they're all faculty or PhD students will call. So how did like really screw up your PhD life? So among the things, I added at the last minute this junior faculty, and like I'm defending, he blew it up. It's like, oh, your agent's risk neutral. That's like so messed up. Of course, the agent would just take over the firm. Like, what's what's the agency problem? And so, I leave to go to Carnegie, and that, that is his own craziness. Appointment as an ABD, so I can rewrite this damn essay and with much work get effectively the same results with now a risk averse agent. Uh, and it was tricky. I talk a lot with doctors about the sociology of knowledge, and it's so fascinating because, like, three or four years later, the math econ agency crowd said, "You know, we've we're running aground here. We've maxed out. How many models of risk sharing can we do? You know what? How about we screw it? We'll just let the agent be risk neutral. We can do some fun stuff." Like I was just a little, a little too early before they decided to change those um, norms about what stupid assumptions we hold on to and which we kind of let go. Um, so I actually threw it in the garbage can because I like, okay, I'm starting to do this stuff with Wes and Mark Fitchman. And, but I had this kind of, so I had a schizophrenic doctor said, and anyway, as a first year PhD student, I do this paper with Jim that came reasonably big beyond model adaptive learning. So I'm sort of not being a fully integrated person <laughs> in those, uh, those uh, two worlds. And then just to add another footnote of this, doubling down on dumb decisions. Uh, so Carnegie was foolish enough to offer me a, as a rookie, a joint appointment in the econ group and the organizations group because Carnegie and Dan has this weird background. Like, why not? And I think, wow, this is where Jim did his magic. I should, I should go to Carnegie and it sounds interesting. Um, you know, I'm going ahead of the story, but you know, just the, so, uh, so the economist actually thought I was an economist. That was my job type, this agency model. It was kind of cool. And, Fine, sort of hang. And then I hang out with the org people. I start teaching strategy. And um, actually, an interesting part of our, you know, uh, you, you, you were to ask, I'm, you don't even have to ask questions. You just say, well, you got my whole bio. But um, so, uh, you know, struggles or what have you. So I come up with my third renewal and I have the publication. I'm like, I'm kind of oblivious to my little thing. And it turns out they didn't want to renew me. Like, Go figure. Uh, like it's a renewal. You gotta be kidding me. Uh, <laughs> and, and sort of part of the irony is at the same time they didn't want to renew me because the economists like felt betrayed and and they particularly got energized around this throwaway piece, which actually was important. I, I for I, I didn't work with a doctoral student in marketing just because he had nobody to help him and he was this terrific guy and he's now a very distinguished professor, chair professor of Duke. Uh, and his dissertation got the award for best uh, dissertation in American Marketing Association. But hey, 
they hated that paper we did together, which ended up being a big deal in marketing science because we didn't derive the underlying utility function, blah, blah. but basically it was, I betrayed the true, true faith and true religion. But fortunately at the same time, they didn't want to renew my contract. Uh, are they going to penalize it took me two years because I'm not really a good person. Uh, Northwestern and Stanford were offering, you know, went after me to promote me to associate. Uh, so actually, nine months after they didn't want to renew me, they really decided with their immense rational expectation, rationality, clever forethought, actually what they really meant to do was promote me to associate. Uh, but I kind of, that whole sense of goodwill diminished. Um, it actually was sort of at Warden, I became a somewhat more, well, I picked Warden Park, because like, okay, whatever I do will fit within management. And my strategy, maybe I'll learn something about the strategy field by going to a place that actually has a strategy group. Uh, so I had a kind of um, prolonged adolescence or sort of confused uh, phase one, but it maybe made me a robust actor for uh, future work. But I think it's also, you know, part of my often being a kind of um, outsider to conversation for sort of blending fields. And that's sort of, I just, you know, I grew up in a somewhat schizophrenic way, but ultimately slightly healthier adaptation to that. So long-winded answer to a, but a yeah, kind of complicated background. Um, so, uh, you know, since you, since you mentioned sort of the work with Wes, uh, let's talk about that. I mean, so obviously, you know, absorptive capacity is this kind of, uh, you know, huge, huge piece that's been so influential in the field. Uh, so, you know, I'd be curious to hear sort of the story of that paper, actually the papers, I guess, because there's the economic uh, journal piece and then there's the SQ piece. You know, how did you end up, where did the idea come from? How did you end up working with West? Just kind of the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's actually pretty simple. Uh, uh, so, you know, the genesis is I'm absentmindedly proctoring. I mean, oh, so to, back to my, you know, so what was my teaching my first two years at Carnegie? Uh, it was really awesome. In the fall, I taught intermediate micro, and in the spring, I taught intro OB. You know, really synergistic kind of optimized teaching mode. Uh, so, and then my third year, like they needed somebody to teach strategy. Like, oh, whoa, that, that sounds like a good idea. One prep, and I don't have to decide whether I'm a Canvas OB person. Yeah, sure, I'll, I'll do that. Uh, so. <laughs> While proctoring an intermediate micro exam, I was reading a back issue of Econometrica, and uh, there's this article Mike Spence had, and you know, it's this nice model of spillovers, and he ends up with this, you know, it's a kind of charming model, it's Econometrica. At the end, like, gee, given all these spillovers, why are these firms, these semiconductor firms you're doing R&D? And I thought, well, I can tell you, Spence, because I'm a learning guy. Like, of course they are. like you're just assuming because it's out there not protected on the property rights like it's there you know anybody could stick their nose in the trough uh and then me as a modeler like you know what i can take his kinetic model add a new element let's call it absorb capacity that changes with r d it moves up in some concave way and as the modeler with my model intuition you know, i can flip his result i bet you i can find conditions where Spillovers go up, and actually, the incentive to do R and D will go up. And you know, the, I thought that was kind of cool. Um, I happen to know Wes socially, and so while the spirit of the Carnegie, when we think of the Carnegie School, when I was at Carnegie mid '80s, really lived in this quirky department called Social Decision Sciences. And Wes was there, 
Steve Klepper was there, um, Mark Hamlin was chair, uh, chair of it. So, and I, yeah, yeah. The, the one person I knew when I arrived at Carnegie was Mark Hamlin, because I knew Mark, that connected me West, and okay, so I'm like, what, like West, like, he came out of Yale, he actually knows something about R&D and that stuff, so I tell Wes this, and those of you know Wes, he'd get pretty excited, it's like, yeah, oh, this is great, yeah. And so, you know, I could do the model, but Wes actually knew the context, and he and Dave Mowry had done a lot of work together and built a really amazing data set that gave them data at the line of business level, affirmed investments, and Wes being a Yale guy was intimately familiar with the, the Yale survey that allowed us so kind of, you know, I had my little theoretical insight and Wes had his actual content, contextualized knowledge and, and we're off the races. And so um, we actually, did, you know, you guys want to know the backstory, right? So we did initially did just my kind of pure modeling exercise, set it to RAN and like basically not enough game theory. I'm like, what the hell is a national delivery? I'm like, how much game theory do you want? I'm like, what do I know? Not fun. It's the same DM model that Spence published in Conmetrica, you know, but, but then Wes realized, you know what, actually, I think we could actually do something empirical. And then we sent that to the Economic Journal, lost their heart, and worked out well for them as well. Um, and then there was a special issue opportunity at ASQ that um, Dick Nelson and Mike Tushman were doing. And we thought, you know, we kind of black boxed it because it was that Economic Journal article. Like, you know, absorbent capacity was a function. You stick in M and it goes up, you know. So uh, maybe we could use that opportunity to try to, you know, unpack a little bit um, what's going on. Um, and then we, you know, we did the fortune favors piece, but it's it's interesting, I think maybe because like I went to Wharton and then a couple of years later, West Coast and Duke, whatever. Um, but, you know, it's very gratifying. The world built on it, but right, it, it maybe maybe the world built on it even more and better because Wes and I <laughs> kind of walked away. <laughs> you know, it's kind of it's in public domain, uh, and, and people could kind of run with it, and it's really very very glad. But I think back to your kind of initial, you know, there's the random garbage can element, but it is also reflecting the sort of intellectual recombination. You know, so. I'm trained and socialized well, enough by economists to understand and be able to operate within their frame of Spence's Conmetrical, but I'm also socialized and acculturated to, to issues around word learning. And so, you know, I'm looking at their work from that vantage point, and I see this enormous kind of assumption, kind of, uh, uh, actually sort of funny, it's the lead paragraph of that piece, actually, Mike, Parents were good friends with Kenny Arrow. So the, the foil uh, for that piece was actually uh, Arrow and his kind of uh, work, work, kind of lead paragraph. But but it's, yeah, kind of the virtue of being A in, in both both worlds. But, you know, in a sufficiently serious way that one could operate in, in both both worlds. Well, you know, the the absorptive, since you since we're talking about kind of recombination and 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 also talking about some sense the origins of some of these seminal pieces and strategy right so one of the one of the things that i think several people many let's use your president's terms many people have said that you know there's a period which the absorptive capacity piece comes right in the middle of from let's say the mid to uh early 80s to the mid to late 90s where just 
so much foundational canonical work uh, of what we call the strategy field today is happening, right? Whether it's evolutionary economics, it's RBV, it's absorptive capacity, it's myopia and search, it's adaptation and rugged landscapes, it's dynamic capabilities, all of that. Uh, and, and so as you know, someone who's kind of a central figure in that sort of time uh, period, what's going on there? Uh, what's in the air or the water that's kind of making? Um, I don't know about a particular, I mean, I guess I've, I've multiple thoughts, <laughs> divergence of that. So, so one is, um, you know, I think what is big is perhaps more salient in retrospect than in real time. So, so how much of this in real time do people think is a big deal versus here's another paper that maybe six years down the road, oh yeah, this is like now influential. And so, um, so you know, in 2020, you know, what is co what's coming out in 2020 that maybe six years from now will be kind of, kind of important. Um, I think, you know, there is something maybe more specific about, you know, historically centered around the field. Um, well, I don't, I don't think it's a statement about necessarily why we won't get wonderful stuff today, but yeah, so maybe it's not a, not an explanation, but a fact. Um, so, you know, I had never taken a strategy, I've never taken a strategy course in my life. Um, you know, I, when I was a PhD student, Stanford blew up their strategy group. Uh, so they had a pretty distinguished, you know, capitally distinguished group, uh, Bourgeois, Jameson, Bergelman, and Bergelman became the sole survivor. And, you know, Stanford, well, you know, we should do something more disciplinary. And they kind of did some experimentation with that, and they're still, in some sense, experimenting. Um, you know, there might have been, you know, there was some openness uh, outsiders, but I'm not sure, you know, I'm not, um, but I guess what I'd also want to say or, you know, point out, um, you know, take Connie Health out as a, you know, contemporary line in the, you know, we, we didn't know each other at PhD, so, but, you know, roughly, okay. so, you know, Connie's at Yale, McLevin, so, yeah, we were, didn't, you know, grow up as in a strategy PhD program, but I don't, you know, speaking on behalf of Connie, but I think I can safely say this, uh, you know, I don't think either of us think of ourselves as disciplinary kind of, you know, Stalinist or something like, oh, you know, we got trained in economics and sociology. We came to teach these, you know, people the proper truth. In fact, no, you know, I lose my job at Carnegie because I wasn't a proper member of, you know, a certain church. Um, so I think you have some people with diverse training, but intellectual openness. Uh, and versus like, you know, my paradigm has the answer and we can be imperialistic, which we certainly see exemplars of. Uh, I'm not sure how helpful that is to <laughs> the field or uh, broader progress. But if we want to think about Schumpeterian recognitions, um, people who have some fairly deep intellectual diversity and a sort of open-mindedness <laughs> Uh, might be interesting fodder for, for uh, processes. Now, I think, you know, what attracted me to the strategy field, and again, I expect for Connie as well, you know, it, it is sort of this um, wonderful, big, intellectually eclectic 
sandbox, okay, where I get it, it's solved my identity problem. Was I a communist? Was I an OB person? Ah, not really. Oh, here's a third option. Whoa, phew. I could do rational choice models with Brian Wu. That's okay. I can do learning models. It's all good. Like, wow. And, you know, yeah, we get paid and that young, you can like can be engaged with the MBA students. Like, wow, what a great gig. So I think it became a, you know, for me, that's really, yeah, kind of this kind of safe place of kind of intellectual collectivism. And so I think that's partly whether it's, and I, and I'm, I babble and integrate, uh, you know, whether it's me as a journal editor or me as a department chair, why, yeah, I can be hard ass intellectual snob, but it's not about purity, okay? Like if I wanted to play the pure game, I would have stayed in one of these churches. Uh, and I get very nervous and hostile when sort of there's that kind of, you know, we need to be disciplinary, right? No, that's why I became a strategy person. I want interesting, complicated problems and some intellectual collectivism. And, and I think that's kind of, so I think, um, so I think, you know, whether some of us as outsiders, you know, came with a certain background, but, but also a kind of sensibility uh, and, and not the imperialism. Uh, and I, so I think I don't, and I think, you know, strategy field is great. We have great PhD students. Uh, we, we, can, we can nurture our own, you know, really strong scholars uh, and have that kind of eclectism. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not sure it particularly answers your question, but you, you, you triggered a, yet another uh, monologue. That's mostly my goal, right? Okay, you're good. It doesn't take much with me. <laughs> it, it, it's it's like market. an NK model, right? I just kind of take one yeah, step in the direction yeah, and then yeah, yeah, you yeah, climb yeah. to the local peak. But yeah. uh, so, um, you know, I, 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 I'm also curious about sort of building down that road. Uh, you know, so you know, we've been talking about sort of absorptive capacity in this kind of tremendously successful paper. Uh, but it's obviously it's important to think about, I, you know, I, I don't think anything you've written qualifies as a failure, but, but what would be, you know, some ideas or things you worked on that you feel like you were surprised did not maybe get as much attention or did not get as much pickup as you, you would have thought they would yeah. be more impactful. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I, don't know. I mean, I, I, um, you know, the, um, Actually, I think a relatively recent paper with Alison and Marino, I think is actually interesting important that nobody's paying attention to. It's important to my own thinking. Uh, but uh, maybe we didn't make it compelling enough, I think. But uh, the sort of the internal ecology, I think we actually something, had something kind of interesting to say. Um, but, you know, I ultimately, whether it's an individual or, yeah, I think about individual article where people like, oh, we can blame the reviewers, we blame the reviewers. Look, Ultimately, doesn't mean an author to make it compelling, make 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 the sell. Uh, so, you know, I'm not going to blame the audience. Uh, you know, I didn't I didn't make the sell effectively, and maybe there were too many moving parts to get around. Um, but um, I'm mostly self well per that mostly self critical in that sense of like okay, there's you know. I'm slow, moderately competent. You know, there's there's lots of stuff I haven't haven't done. Uh, so it's more 
more my feebleness and on the production side and then kind of, you know, oh, here was this chestnut that, you know. But again, as I take it like, okay, I, you know, maybe there'll be a down the road variant to that work that kind of like, um, that uh, clicks. And it's, it's interesting, the, um, my rambling, but there, there's a, what's read as a, actually, whether this is, well, maybe politically incorrect or not, but kind of, kind of, but, um, historian talking about um, Columbus and like, why do we reify this guy? Okay. So clearly not the first, right? We got people coming from, <laughs> from Asia a long time. You know, they got him beat by a couple thousand years. So, and if we just cared about white guys, like, okay, you got this, the Nordic explorer. So like, he's not even the first white guy. Like, okay, so what makes him such a big deal? Um, and he had a really interesting observation. I, and it's, I've kind of used it a lot talking to, to the junior scholars about work and like, oh, you know, there was this piece and the antecedents and so on. And what I thought was really powerful is obvious, like after Columbus, he's important because he's the last one to discover. It didn't need to get rediscovered of that. Like even white Europeans now knew where to find it. Okay, <laughs> you know? Uh, so this is the last time we have to solve this problem. And I think, you know, in academic work, you know, there's always, we're building on. I mean, there were antecedents, obviously, of Dorian Capacity. We cite them, we were like, bury them. You know? David Teese's early work had some elements when he was thinking about multi-hand investment. Um, you know, Nate Rosenberg was actually, <laughs> I knew him, and my parents, and he had some of his work. And I actually I gave him this story to Nate, and he actually kind of liked it, because he, you know, yes, we cited Nate's work. We weren't hiding the stuff that he and Dave Mallory were doing. We being as intellectually honest as we could in our intro. Um, but, you know, there's sort of the work gets crystallized in a way and the pieces come together and understood, and then that work becomes a touchstone and kind of encapsulates, you know, a, a broader lineage and tradition of which it itself came out of, right? Nothing comes out of the blue. Uh, and so maybe trying to get back like, you know, down the day, will I do a kind of better version <laughs> of that paper that kind of like crystallizes it and makes a better cell and has a stronger, yeah, maybe, you know? Um, but yeah, that's why I sort of feel like uh, it's on me as, as the, the author uh, creator. You know, I didn't quite uh, deliver, or maybe somebody else will be the Columbus who discovers the core of those ideas. And it won't be me, because I didn't quite pull it together in a, in a sufficiently uh, effective way. So shifting gears a little bit to think about, you know, uh, I mean, obviously you've played many, many editorial roles uh, over the years, uh, but I want to focus specifically on, right, so, you know, you, you, you're editor-in-chief for organization science, you step down from that, most people would take a break, you go ahead and like not only found a new journal, you found a whole new chapter in forms. Uh, what drove that? Yeah, well, kind of, kind of foolish, right? So, um, and I was actually for a little bit of that. I was also the department chair, but um, uh, so I mean, part of it, um, you know, I renewed at Nord Science, and that's really important to me, and felt good about what we were doing there. Um, and there began to be some chatter about maybe an informed strategy journal, and as you noted, like back in the day, I'd been a department editor within management science. Um, 
And it struck me, maybe not sensible, rational, holistic sense about my life and allocating time and energy, but in terms of my editorial life, conditioned on spending a lot of time on editorial work, um, it seemed to me, actually, you know what, org science is in a good place. This could be a higher value contribution to the field. I mean, the field has had you know, one pure play journal. We're a pretty big field. One, one's a small number, better than zero. Uh, and certainly strategy work, you know, there is a window within management science, a few pieces show up there, certainly org science. But I also was cognizant, I didn't want to, um, when I was doing network science, I was very cognizant of uh, sort of not corrupting it and turning it into a strategy journal. Like, okay, I was aware, I'm a sort of, there's ways in which I felt like I both made sense and didn't make sense as editor-in-chief. And Org Science had kind of a bit of a strong Carnegie lineage, starting with Ari Lewin and Linda Argati, and I, I sort of fit that piece, but you know, they were more pure play org people than I was. Uh, and I was sort of self-conscious of like, okay, you know, how much of, you know, that waterfront we should cover, and do I look like an evil strategy person corrupting org science as a journal, and I don't do that. Um, and yet, and inform, you know, there was a, there was a real logic. And, there was a, and, and so I could kind of, you know, I had the relationship with the informs folks to kind of had some credibility with them. Uh, and yeah, so to see, instead of, you know, filling out the next year or two of my org science term, you know what, if I'm going to spend this much life, that fraction of my life that I spent on editorial work, now maybe I could have reallocated that to other things, but conditional on that, uh, a better use uh, would kind of to kind of start up strategy science. And so, you know, the field could actually have um, two journals uh, in a kind of elite high end way that are pure, pure play journals. I, I mean, so we, we haven't. We're not actually opening to questions yet, but I'm going to take one anyway, because Gwen had a question, okay. leading question, Gwen, but anyway, about uh, how do you think strategy science is going? Ha! It's insider, right? <laughs> how uh, much did you pay her to ask that question? <laughs> I think it's going well. I mean, I've really been pleased with, I'm proud of what we've been putting out. Um, and we have the luxury as a quarterly, you know, looking for four good articles, we get four good articles. And, and I feel like, you know, part of what I want to do with it, and I think we are doing a little bit is, um, it's fun operating a boutique. So work science, like you're, here's the Chandlerian firm, like, oh my god, you know, I'm dealing with exceptions and crises. And also sort of, it's, it's sort of like being department chair, but better because you're a dictator, like department chair with this whole democracy thing, better vote. So um, I'm kind of, I like by not benign dictatorship is like a preferred mode of governance. But, um, uh, but it's this giant thing and I'm not touching manuscripts in an intellectual sense, right? And like, oh my God, I can actually like read papers and my, my senior editors can like, Bill Burnett and Joanne Oxley can actually read and think about a, a manuscript. They're not, you know, you folks are doing A and J and S and J, whew, bless your heart. You're moving a lot of product. That's a lot of volume. And you're working really hard, but we all have finite time and energy. So it's a real pleasure to, without completely driving myself crazy, and I think my, and we have a pretty senior, senior editor team, uh, 
you know, to kind of get a little, you know, we're tough, a lot of an immediate rejects, but if we're dealing with the manuscript, can, can actually engage with it. Um, and I think partly because the editors are particularly on the senior side, um, you know, all work is in, if imperfect in its own way and you got to make trade-offs and choices. And I think uh, both we have norms and a team that can do that. You know, this is interesting. It pushes the ball forward. Uh, there's some real value here or, and, and, you know, we can also, here's the, I mean, go, go back to the reviewers, uh, you know, Joanne can take it the next mile. So it's kind of, um, there's a gratification of both kind of adding something to the field. There's also kind of intellectual gratification at a kind of narrow level that, you know, dealing with something that had a large end manuscripts, you know, you, I wasn't, uh, able to do, but I also hope and looking forward to be part of that as a byproduct to um, open up the iron cage of genres, right? So, so you know, like you know, the example of uh, uh, Victor Ben and Emily Feldman, you know, this kind of paper that was really well done empirics without any hypothesis. Like here it is, you know, here's we see these kind of um, investments that's going on, what's triggering the acquisitions and. Uh, and I've been able to use that as an editor, like actually somebody just I gave somebody a yes, reject and said like, you know, you got these, I'm not buying your kind of strained theoretical argument. There's an interesting phenomenon here. You got some interesting data. So it's like, why are we pretending here? I, I'm just saying, just could you, and actually it took them a little back before I could test them. And it was great. They like threw away this turgid, painful front end. It's readable. It's interesting. There's something there and you know, and so um, both at the individual manager, but also like, you know, that, that's a way to have an article. Uh, and so I think more generally, and I think as we can open up the sort of genres, you know, there's some positive endogeneity. Somebody sees that, oh, I can write an article that's in a somewhat different format, um, you know, or I can write this, uh, actually the very first paper we published, uh, Luz Cabral, I love it as an exemplar of genre because he, he kind of did it in the John Sutton style where like, here's this game theory model. And in the back end, I basically got some case examples, kind of like Sutton does in his book. Like any reasonable normal journal, you'd send it out and the appearance of like, you know, one of the reviewers is the IO appearance, like what the hell, really? You know, you got these three arbitrary industries and you're showing me some descriptives on them. Like really, you know, you expect the elite journal to do this? And I think like, well, that makes your game theory model so much more interesting. Like I actually now you, you anchored it and, and some phenomena, but you know, it takes a established senior editor acting in manuscript and says, yeah, this is weird and unusual picture, but in a good way, wouldn't it be awesome if uh, other people thought to do that? You know, that, that, you know, you've got your model, can I reduce it or can I find a data set that really allows me to test it in a kind of, mean of conventional sense, but, you know, better than the sort of just Wall Street Journal little example, these kind of, you know, and actually I would always hold up Sutton as a wonderful example of a PhD students, um, you know, kind of like just, wow, you know, from a static point of view, and intellect, intellect, but these beautiful models, and then here's a chapter about the butter industry. <laughs> How cool is that? Uh, so, you know, that's a different genre. You know, what Miles Shaver likes to call the just the facts paper, you know, that's a different genre. So I think we can both 
we're happy to have conventional stuff and we can make our own kind of trade-offs and help, help curate that kind of stuff. But I think we're, as a smaller volume boutique, able to kind of push the frontiers a little bit uh, on the genre side, which, you know, if I'm handling 40 manuscripts a year, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I mean, it just, you know, it's impossible. Uh, as earnest as anybody, you know, I'm sure you are, it's just like, that's, that's we're, all, we're all bound it. Uh, so I think that's, um, yeah, kind, kind, kind of, fun way it kind of can kind of broaden uh, the field in interesting, uh, interesting ways. And it's nice, yeah. So, yeah, I'm good. Yeah, um, so I, I'm gonna actually pass it over to Andrea because I know he had a, a, a you know, we were gonna sort of switch back and forth and I've been taking up all the air. So, Andrea, all yours. Uh, okay, so um, well, one of the classic questions that we ask at these sessions, is uh, what do you think are some of the most sort of uh, some of the research questions that are more interesting and also maybe important uh, in uh, strategy at this point in time? Uh, at some level, I have no clue. I mean, you guys, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty self-absorbed. I know, you know, it's me and, and maybe self-absorbed enough, like if I find it interesting and with two or three people I talk to, it's kind of, you know, Seems like a fun project. So I'm not sure, yeah, I kind of have, you know, for, for, for the field. I mean, I can tell you from my narrow self-absorbed perspective. Yeah, yeah. No, but from I, your perspective, absolutely. You know, so I, and again, in my narrow little sandbox in which I operate. Uh, so thinking about, you know, issues of learning adaptation. Um, you know, one thing, so uh, I would offer two, two, one sort of maybe slightly narrow one more. I've done some work on one, one less. Um, so learning and strategy as ideas, in some ways are kind of not natural bedfellows, right? In the sense of, you know, one way we think about something as being strategic is, oh, it has long-term intertemporal implications, or, oh, it's deal with the entire firm. It's got these spatial interdependencies. Um, and think about my ancient work with Jim March and the of learning, that's exactly where learning would break down, <laughs> okay? And so for all like the current enthusiasm of machine learning is gonna substitute for strategic thinking. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's gonna be really awesome about how I ought to price my goods on Amazon maybe and what font colors I should use uh, on my website. I mean, I'm sure it's gonna be unambiguously really awesome at, at kind of the operational level. Uh, but, slow, unclear feedback situations is where, so it's always been a kind of challenge puzzle for me. I'm a learning guy, it's reinforcement, and I happen to think about reinforcement learning in its exactly worst context, <laughs> strategy. Uh, so that's an interesting challenge. And that's why, you know, some of the early stuff I did with, you know, Christine and Yerker Christine on credit assignment, it's what made me interested in analogical reasoning. Oh, there be another, you know, so, you know, doing some current work on generalization. Uh, but it's still, um, you know, you think about the credit assignment. So in some sense, it's your mental model becomes a reinforcer. You know, sort of Holland's got a very interesting kind of, kind of idea. So I still think I am 
fairly feeble in the ways in which I've sort of thought about and understand that. Uh, I still am sort of intellectually committed <laughs> to both agendas, learning and strategy. Uh, so that's a problem. Uh, and, and so I've done work, but I think there's a lot to be done there. I think another, maybe not even less, is um, power and politics. So, um, yeah, we have a cartoon version of power, of power and agency model. Here I am, here's the, I get to set the, the structure on this godlike principle and, you know, and I don't completely control you, I have to give you contracts. Um, but the kind of contestation, right? And then we have like the learning people, okay, people are a little confused, life is complicated, but they're earnest souls. And in some ways, politics is a little bit in between. It's not quite the agency model. There's some sense of individual subgroup interest. And, you know, certainly, you know, some of that has, has entered uh, the field, but I still think we, we um, you know, it's sort of on my to-do list. I have a couple of projects I'm finishing up and actually something I'd actually like to, and maybe even combine a little bit those uh, those two kind of uh, interests and in, around thinking about coalitions inside the organizations. And so, I, yeah, I think it's it's been um, not really part of, of and I, I think I've, you know, I think about organizations as these nested hierarchical subsystems. And so, and if you got resource allocation, then clearly the politics should be part of that. Uh, and it's, not independent of thinking about ideas about credit assignment and why different groups and uh, coalitions with the enterprise may have a more or less less power. So you can imagine uh, combining those um, those agendas. So that's the, my very narrow little world that I live in. You know, more broadly, I mean, it is interesting for me, or you know, or the. Um, you know, you always sometimes, you know, my state, am I a dinosaur or is the world coming around to your point of view? So <laughs> I think kind of both. Uh, so um, it's really fascinating, right? And like, you know, Andre, our, our work on, on thinking about lean startup. So this idea of the experiment organization is like front and center, right? This is no longer, so it's, it's being very much part of kind of how business practice is operating. Um, I think, um, well, I'm going to probably get in trouble if this is recorded. Um, I think the, the, um, you know, the sort of random control trial variant, uh, which is kind of, I think, you know, well, I love that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I have something I'm in the process of writing and I will, I will, I will hold off for more coherent uh, uh, kind of triangulation between RCT and, and um, other perspectives on learning. Um, but um, yeah, so yeah, partly relevant, partly dinosaur. But but uh, but yeah, okay, so those are some of my own. Those are my personal kind of to-do items. Uh, if I don't get seduced by other things. Thank you. So that was very, very interesting. Um, one more question that we had is about 
So we have lots of PhD students and the junior uh, faculty in this, uh, in this session. Um, and so, you know, the sort of the world of business school has been changing a lot over the past few years, you know, uh, online education, um, there's a little bit of a sort of a shift of, you know, tech companies, jobs, and things like that. And then this recent pandemic has maybe uh, made this change even more intense and, and faster. So lots of us uh, are trying to kind of navigate this, this kind of career at the beginning. And so do you have any pieces of advice on uh, how to read the situation? Well, so, I mean, there's multiple elements there. So kind of, are there some systemic forces that are somewhat adverse from the point of view of somebody with a PhD or about to get a PhD in, in business strategy. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I'm not sure what one does about it, but I would say, you know, the MBA market is going to, to shrink, right? So now fortunately, I think still the, um, the good state schools still have a large undergraduate business program and there will be jobs for people who, who teach business strategy. Um, if I was running an MBA program at one of those institutions, that, this is probably a time of real, real, real stress, but, uh, but that doesn't, you know, at those institutions, the bulk of the teaching is actually always at the undergraduate level. So I think at the MBA world, I certainly want, you know, being a dean at certain institutions would be a point of stress. I'm not sure how it will affect faculty on the margin to they'll be slightly less resource rich and your, your research accounts on the margin may, may go down a little bit because the MBA program, or is this accelerating a change that was happening anyway? And instead of having a sort of a money losing small underscale MBA program, we operate at scale at the undergraduate level. And in fact, our bottom line, you know, Hasn't changed, but that, that in some ways is a dean's problem, not the professor's problem. Um, I think there are ways in which arguably systemic macro changes are to the good, and this speaks a little bit about uh, the experimenting organization, right? So, arguably, you know, the eighties, nineties, you know, Jim March used to joke about business schools basically being schools of applied economics. Uh, I think that is perhaps going to become less true, okay? The interest in entrepreneurship, the recognition uh, of kind of a, you know, I think the financial collapse, even Wharton, which has a kind of strong tradition, <laughs> finance, uh, or Columbia, you know, the, the financial collapse, the, the Great Recession was a bit of a wake-up call, to, oh, consulting jobs and actually operating companies, jobs and tech companies, that's actually kind of important for our students um, or not. And so I think um, in ways that sort of are helpful for our team, as it were, uh, the relevant imports within the context of the MBA education or the undergraduate education of management and strategy, I think is, is um, you know, there's a relative ascendancy of that versus 10, 15 years ago of finance, you know, I'm coming in, I'm learning some finance, I'm learning some tricks, and then I'm gonna go off to investment bank or hedge fund, you know, kind of walking out the door and working at Google or Amazon in corporate development where yes, I know some finance, but I also actually know something about strategy uh, is, you know, becoming a more 
typical career path and, and then the sort of, um, you know, the intellectual challenge that one can have and sort of, you know, and sort of now we're in this world of big data. So back in the day, the big data that you, you know, unless you were in consumer marketing, you know, big data meant data about asset pricing. Right? So I was going to be this analytical person and show my analytical cleverness on econometrics. You know, let me backcast my new model of, you know, asset pricing. Okay. Whoa, now we got big data on operating stuff, you know, I can, I can think about big data or medium sized data in these other contexts. So I think some of the sort of um, trainable skills out of the business school uh, are compared to compared advantage. The arenas in which that can be, uh, manifest have, have grown and particularly grown outside the world of finance. So, so in some, I think there is a kind of um, shrinkage um, yeah, but, but I hope that's just going to take small MBA programs maybe to smaller, but doesn't fundamentally change our profession. And I think there are ways in which, uh, of growth, certainly, you know, the, the, I think I suspect you look at most distributions, you look at the institutions, the distribution and student majors and so on have kind of shifted in the last 10 years in ways that are sort of favorable for the folks on, on this call. You're muted. I just said thank you. It was great. Uh, and I'll pass it back to Asim now. So Dan, um, you know, since we were just hearing from one of your PhD students, I figure this is a good time to ask you the question about PhD students. So as I mentioned, you know, you've you've really been kind of central to PhD education and working working with. I think I may be one of the few people you yeah, you didn't actually no work with, with some combination of myopia on my part and foresight on yours. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, so actually we had a couple of questions uh, that people had asked me to ask. Uh, so I'm just going to ask those uh, together. Uh, and, and the questions were really about sort of selection effects or treatment effects, right? So, uh, so what do you look for? uh in in when picking phd students to work with and then what do you actually what advice do you give them that turns them into uh these sort of incredible researchers so i gotta give them the answer that jim march to give which is like you know um i don't pick students they pick me you didn't pick me a scene well, people come to my office andre came to my office talked to me that was a little maybe less friendly the initial conversation i warmed up um but um Actually, Sendel has an answer, has this great story. When I got this, uh, he shared, I got the award from the Academy for doctoral training. Apparently not apocryphal. So when he was a student, there was some rumor that I gave them a math test. And so Sendel tells a story like, you know, I've been taking math for a while, I don't know. I'm kind of interested in talking about Dan on modularity. And he bravely came in and oh, it turned out it wasn't a math test. Now, I remember our first couple of conversations where I said like, no, I don't like your idea. I liked him, but, and you know, the third conversation became the basis of our magical science paper. Um, so, yeah, my door's open. Some people walk in, some don't. Um, I think um, I, 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 what I, maybe why some people don't walk in and what I don't, I'm not, you know, I'm interested in an open conversation. I'm not interested. So I said, you know, you know, I think we could do a get a publication doing X. Like, oh my God, that's like total relationship turnoff. It's like, oh, 
Ah, where's the magic? You're being way too instrumental here. Um, so, yeah, maybe I'm more inviting to conversations or something, but it, but it's, I think it's, yeah, it's a, a selective in. Now, I guess part of treatment, you know, maybe for that, uh, I'm sort of sharing, you know, what do I know? I can only learn from what my students tell me, former students. Uh, so Ron Adder is another kind of great story about the ways I'm worthless or maybe useful. Um, so he's a PhD student and his peers, apparently, you know, he's hearing from his peers all this great stuff about what they should be doing in the academy and networking more broadly and thinking about this stuff. And he's been like, oh my God, like, what the hell? I'm with Dan and I'm not, I'm not getting any of this good stuff. Uh, so he comes in like, so Dan, you know, I'm here and all this stuff. Like, so when are you gonna like, give me these good chestnuts about tacos? And I looked at him like, you know, Ron, that's just, just, that's just too good work. Okay, that's hard. You know, I mean, it's like, how much bandwidth do you want to like spend, you know, thinking about being clever in those, those, those ways? And Ron has this great thing, like, it was both absolutely useless advice and some of the best advice. Uh, so I think what I try, I mean, there's a sort of, you know, there's, Marge would say, you know, there's the process. So I think the sort of passion for the work, the sort of, and that you're really, yes, ultimately you want some publications, but is there that excitement or something that's animating you? Uh, and that's going to make it both more fun and ultimately better work. Um, you know, kind of. I think sometimes, you know, I think one way in which you can contribute, we have this sort of, you know, who's, who's going to be the little boy who says the emperor has no clothes, right? It's kind of like willing to challenge, taking for granted assumptions, being, you know, I tend to be irreverent in ways that maybe not work for me. <laughs> maybe in some cases it works and kind of uh, socialize that. But I think, um, and I think it's just students, yeah, you know, somebody wants a structured pathway, like I'm going to be frustrating because like, I'm going to ask you what you're interested in, and uh, but Dan, you're supposed to tell me what I'm supposed to do. Uh, so I think there's an issue of fit, um, but that that's really driven more by the student, and and yeah, I'm sort of question driven. Um, and, you know, it works for some, um, and I'm, you know, I think part of the blessing at Ford is to have you know have a great great we we have good input um, as well. Uh, I, I think in my case, it was mostly just the beard, but you know, so ah, if you changed it off a little bit earlier, we could yeah. have you together. Anyway, um, so, uh, you know, I, I, we are getting to the point where I want to move to Q&A, but I have one last question before I do that. So looking back, uh, you know, from the vantage point of, of, of where you sit in your career now and keeping in mind that we have many PhD students, assistant professors on the call and potentially viewing this video, what would be the one thing you know now or, or appreciate now that you wish you had known then or appreciated when you were just starting out? Um, I don't know, I was pretty foolish and non-instrumental. So like, and that, you know, I sort of blundered in my Mr. Magoo way and it sort of worked out for me. Um, it, um, I was kind of in, probably so norms have changed. 
I was sort of my personal inclination and maybe socialized, like shot, I would never go to somebody and like, oh, here's this paper, or, you know, reach out to somebody at the academy. Like it was never like, okay, you know, people I had existing ties with at the meeting. So um, I probably was more insular than, you know, life would have been more fun, probably other kind, kind of ideas, I think partly, um, you know, I think there's individual differences and also kind of uh, uh, kind of historical time period effects. Uh, but if you're figuring out, like, I'm not sure. So I think, um, you know, we like talking shop. I like talking, that's what I do. <laughs> you know, yes, I'm busy. If you send me a paper, people always call, no, I'm not going to probably read it. Uh, but, but, you know, you catch me at the right moment somewhere and I'm happy to chat for half hour about what's going on because of the randomness of it. Uh, yeah, and I think, um, yeah, I was probably sort of more reserved in some ways than might have been fun useful. Okay, so um, I, I want to move on to Q&A, but before we do that, I want us to take a screenshot. Uh, so uh, this is the point where you no longer get to hide behind your little black screens. Uh, as Samina likes to say, if you're decent from the waist up uh, or appropriately dressed, whatever the hell that means, uh, from the waist up, uh, you know, it would be great if you could share your video so we can kind of take a picture. Uh, I'm going to give you like 10 seconds to think about that decision and make that choice and weigh the pros and cons in some hyper-rational way if you want to, although this is dance session, so probably you shouldn't weigh the hyper-rational, you should just take a chance. Um, and then we'll take a picture and then uh, I'm guessing, Andrea, hopefully you will take a picture, uh, although I guess I can too. Uh, okay, so I'm gonna count down to, uh, uh, so, Three, two, one, smile. There we go. Okay. Uh, so let's open it up to questions. I know we had a number of questions in the in the chat. Uh, and, and, and so I'm gonna, I'm just gonna call on you and you can unmute yourself if, uh, assuming you're still here. Uh, I'm going to just call on you and ask you to ask your question rather than trying to read it out, uh, trying to interpret what you were saying and put it through the sort of six degrees problem. Uh, so Ali, uh, you had a question about uh, demand for modeling complexity, if you're here and you want to ask that. Yes, hello. Thank you, Dan, uh, uh, for, for this very interesting discussion and, and sharing your ideas. Um, this question is related to the point you made earlier about the ideas you you sent to the journal and got published. Uh, my question is about whether you see uh, there is uh, the increase for modeling or statistical complexities is affecting the the quality of the ideas being published. Thank you. Um, I'm not sure or what, what the counterfactual you kind of have in mind of sort of, um, I'm not sure they're, they're substitutes, <laughs> uh, kind of, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to claim that, you know, 
Carl White could write some rather brilliant uh, conceptual work that didn't have any model and his pyrics were, didn't have any fancy econometrics. Uh, Carl's a pretty clever guy. Uh, the work had real impact. Uh, so I don't think the fancy econometrics or the fancy modeling is, is, a, is a substitute for some underlying core interesting question. Um, you know, I don't think is it, is it a necessary or carrier. Um, you know, it's probably hard to get a paper that's just verbal theory. You know, the sort of early Jay Barney type papers would probably be hard to publish in 2020. And would you need sort of the basic core Jay insight and some, you know, uh, see Rich there, you know, got some bottle, you know, kind of substantiating that, you know, maybe in 2020. Um, but I, I, I do think it's a mistake to, Again, think, because there's this technical sophistication, oh, the ideas must be rich. Like, no, they're, like, they're kind of somewhat independent. So, you know, do you want to be at the frontier of clarity and, and whether empirical or theoretical what you're doing? Yeah, but, but you know, at the end, there's some animating uh, idea. And actually, I think, um, say, working with doctors students, some, where I want to see like the two or three paragraph statement of what you're up to, because there, there's no way to hide. Like the longer thing, blah, 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 and I'm, here's the literature, blah, 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 and I'm reading it, my eyes are glazing, and I'm sort of getting it, there's a lot of moving parts. Um, but the page version, like, whoa, there it is. There's something there, or there's not something there. Uh, and so, yeah. Um, so I'm not sure it's a good answer to your question, but I, I view them as kind of independent attributes. I appreciate it. Thank you. And since we, uh, Bakan, I know you had a question, but before that, uh, since we are talking about doctoral students again, uh, Georgina, you had a question about uh, doctoral students. Do you want to just ask them? Oh, hi. Thank you for the organization sharing. I'm a year one PhD student from HKUST. So uh, I was wondering uh, what kind of devices you would like to give for doctorate students specific for them choosing their uh, dissertation topics and research identity. And what's the common mistake you see during this process they made? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough life point, right? Kind of, it's very daunting. And, and, and now, to some degree, people in the modern age have kind of made that less daunting in the three essay dissertation. Like, oh, here's my second year paper, and now I do another paper, and then we aggregate it, and it looks like a dissertation. Um, that's less daunting. The potential pathology there is, will you ever have the killer app job talk that's going to blow people away? Uh, right? That that's kind of, you know, do I have that really ambitious thing? So that's one of it. And, and um, but how does that, you know, I think um, you need to give yourself time, okay? And that's a little bit scary. So ideally, like, okay, I'm working on this, you know, maybe I'm the RA or the, my senior paper, and it's an okay project, and it's keeping me kind of busy. But I'm giving myself a couple hours in the afternoon to think about this more ambitious idea. <clears throat> but there's only so many hours in the day I can think productively about ambitious <laughs> idea, right? You know, when I'm not concretely 
building my data set, doing something, you know, kind of tangible. Um, but I think doing any piece of work is enormous amount of time. Okay, there's no easy papers. Uh, so I think one of the unsettling things of doctoral students is, am I going to give myself a couple of months of hanging, you know, uh, before I really feel like there's an idea or I have this idea and this is a context um, where I think, you know, I can make this happen. Um, and that's, and I, I, you know, I think the advisor has to try to make that comfortable. Uh, and again, if that's the only thing you're doing, then you kind of are being a little bit unproductive and you're going to feel even more anxious and bad about yourself. I think some level of parallelism of kind of there's the, you know, initial early stage thing I'm doing and, you know, here's this more ambitious thing that's kind of maybe not so well defined conceptually yet. Maybe I got it defined conceptually, but I haven't found, um, you know, the right, right uh, data context. I mean, I'm gonna, you know, it's dangerous being one of my former students because even though you're, 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 you grew up and you're this distinguished senior principal that I could tell, still tell stories about when you were a youngster. So in this context, my, my story would be saying, um, uh, Felipe Cesar, you know, he had this beautiful, lovely model. But to find empirical context, okay, he needed to see, you know, errors of both the of type one and type two. He had to see things that were rejected and were they good or not bad ideas. Oh my God, that's like impossible at, a, at scale. So Felipe would come in off and we'd brainstorm and then come in like three weeks later, we'd brainstorm. And Felipe's got a lot of energy, a lot of positive, <laughs> as you, many of you know him well, it was kind of tough, you know, when you're <laughs> month two or so of that process, right? And then he had this brilliant idea about mutual funds and how he could do it. But, you know, it wasn't, I'm sure, a happy, and he just, you know, he had some other papers and he could do the model. Um, and then it was an enormous amount of work to do once he had the, oh my God, this context could work for me. That still was an enormous heavy lift <laughs> empirically. Uh, but that's like work. Okay. You know, I know the gradient. I've defined it. Okay. Uh, I can climb this hill. It's, you know, there's some tricks and there's some different things about non-trivial things about finance and asset pricing I need to learn. Um, but it's a well-defined agenda. You know, the hardest, scariest part is I have a diffuse meta concept. You know, I haven't narrowed it down enough conceptually, or I haven't thought about a context where I can map these ideas and get empirical traction. Um, and and I guess so. I don't know, you know, a, a, a magic, you know, how you search through that process. Um, but it is worth giving yourself time to do that. Uh, it's the point in your career where you have the most time. I mean, you know, do I come out of year five or six has life consequences for you? Uh, you need to eat in year six uh, and your, your, your stipend may have disappeared. Uh, so I don't, you know, that's real. Uh, but 
in another level, you're not on the tenure clock, <laughs> but you are the tenure clock. You know, they're on their jobs. Like, okay, you know, I didn't, I didn't get tenure at Carnegie. Uh, so, you know, it may take a little bit of time to kind of gel because if you rush that, you're going to work really hard, and it's in the plateau of the work. You know, you give your seminar the job talk and people are going to beat you up like at the opening sentence because it didn't actually have like the right design you know You're, and so and you still spend a year of your life building that data set and doing that uh so if you think about you know i'm not as the scene was alluding to mr rational expectations but you know you can think a little bit ahead okay uh what will be the critiques of this work before i spend eight months of my life building the data set and doing this, okay? You should be able to think pretty crisply at the design stage of, it's gonna be limited, but do I feel like I'm gonna be a pretty good position when I walk into that seminar and give my job talk? You know, I feel, you know, but but think about those, those critiques, anticipate those critiques before you make the massive investment. And maybe the answer is, you know what? This isn't quite the, the expression of the conceptual ideas. This isn't quite uh, the empirical context. Let me spend a few more afternoons. Um, and again, hopefully, you know, with your advisor, you've got some other work where you can kind of spend the mornings or I don't care. You may be, you might maybe switch your time of day, but I, it's been part of my day. You know, it's the exploitation, exploitation. You know, I'm not just waiting for lightning to strike, but I'm also, not not prematurely uh, locking in because I think in many cases uh, when people are getting critiquing the job talk, these were foreseeable problems. Uh, you know, you may not get the empirical. Oh, I wish I my you know I get greater statistical significance or something. Okay, fine, but but that's not why people are getting beat up in their job talk. <laughs> okay, they're getting beat up typically of some fundamental properties uh, about the research design. And, and so that's something ex-ante uh, you can attend to. And, and maybe again, you, you give yourself the emotional comfort of, I'm gonna toy with, with some other things. Now, it doesn't mean I'm gonna wait for the perfect thing. I mean, again, I can, embarrassing senior scholars in the field uh, in his youth, Michael Jacob Beatus, and this probably won't surprise people that Michael, uh, but he would come in with literally, I remember him coming with six fully formed, individually interesting, complex, you know, dissertation proto-proposal, like, which one should I pick? And my answer was, close your eyes and pick one randomly. Stop having this conversation. Let's just move on with our life. I mean, I mean so he had the opposite of like this, you know, plethora of things and you know which one was going to win the Nobel Prize and we had to parse that. Um, that's unusual. That's Michael. Michael's unusual. He's uh, got a lot, of, a lot of incubating lots of ideas um, in wonderful ways. Uh, but so you could you could have that pathology you know among these amazing things and then it's just like close your eyes and go okay. Uh, but more typical is it's almost there, it's not quite there, you know, or think harder about the context, 
you know, think a little more crisply maybe on the conceptual side about exactly what I'm doing. Because what often happens, you see in the review process, and it's, you know, how one produces mediocre work at some level is like, you know, I thought I was going down this path of the reviewers reading this issue, I'll, I'll repackage. I mean, in some ways that, yeah, that can actually work. Okay, oh, this really is what was going on and now I have this deeper truth. But, but it's, you know, it's kind of, um, you know, I saw other papers like, okay, I ended up, it wasn't like I knew exactly what was gonna happen at the back end, but it's a pretty damn clear idea before I sat down to work on it. I don't like, oh, let's go involve this joint mutual discovery process and see what would happen. No, I, I'm happy to have open-ended conversations about, you know, oh, so how does reinforcement look? What does generalization look like? Okay, and this is where I am probably frustrating to doctoral students and why many sensible ones would want to work with me because I'll have those conversations for a few months. And like, until I like have a clear, oh, this is something well-defined that I can imagine doing. Now let's like do something, but I'm not about to commit to real work uh, as opposed to the afternoon wide-eyed speculation until there's real clarity. And, and again, I don't, I don't think most, most of the problems, I don't think should have been, uh, you know, ex post surprises. You know, you can have ex post disappointments on the, the particular nature of the empirical results or something. Uh, and I'm sometimes surprised about the model and then, you know, intuition, um, but, but the kind of first order stuff where people get beat up, actually, I think it's for mostly could have been anticipated and, and, and give yourself time to, to think through that. So that, that's sort of a, maybe a negative, uh, but, but I think it's important to kind of entertain that to get to the really powerful piece that you're gonna feel good about that you'll be able to defend effectively in that, in, in that job talk situation. Thank you. So I, I, I'm gonna, uh, since we are talking about ideas, I'm gonna open it up to Burke. Uh, you wanna ask your question about ideas? Yeah, sure. Um, my question is actually pretty simple. Um, I was curious about, um, I was curious that um, to learn um, which idea of Dan is he most proud of? Given that he, he has worked with so many different projects and so many different, um, he has uncovered so many different insights. Is there one that he, when he still looks back, when he looks back, looks back and says, wow, like that was a good idea. Right, so, so what, what version of response I feel like, you know, the parent of multiple children, you're supposed to love all your children. And so there's some hesitation about, you know, kind of, you know, the, the favorite child uh, kind, kind of uh, uh, pathology. So, you know, I think I'd actually, I would give maybe an obvious and a less obvious answer. Um, so the sort of obvious perhaps, you know, you know, in terms of like changing the conversation in a kind of clean, definitive way, absorbed capacity, right, has that, and was generative and generative lots of levels. So that's, you know, certainly feel proud of being associated with that. Um, in some aesthetic sense, this is actually oh, aesthetics matter to me, uh, a kind of sleeper, most of you probably wouldn't know, but that's a, well, population ecology people like it. Um, 
I love my paper in random walks as a kind of just a, as a, as a thing of beauty. Here's a incredibly simple stylized model. And thank you, Glenn Carroll, I was able to test it. Uh, so it was kind of a rare case of a kind of simple, clean analytical model. You don't get simpler than a random walk process. It's kind of generative though about what it says about kind of organizational life chances. Uh, and actually I was able to kind of link it to, to Pyrrhic. So sort of a, from a kind of a, now Thor capacity had that as well, but actually the, in some ways the, the we had pretty good measures, uh, but, but it's sort of, there's a certain, you know, it's more stylized, uh, but it has a certain, uh, certain uh, beauty. But I have, I have a funny Wharton story on that one too. But I, so, so I, my first, that's the first paper I gave as a, as a uh, Wharton faculty member. Like, okay, I went from this, you know, well, Carnegie kind of interesting, wacky, disciplinary place. And now I'm in this proper business school. And I give this paper a random walk. And Ned Bowman was this wonderful, wonderful man. It was really kind of a cornerstone of, of the magic department and, and the emergence of a kind of modern strategy group. And then, you know, old school taking a lunch. And so after he you know, kind of walks me out to lunch and, you know, he's a kind of, you know, kind of a traditional scholar in a certain way. And then he kind of raises me, so Dan, you don't really think firms and management is random. <laughs> no, no, but you know, it's a first approximation that it kind of sort of fits the data. Uh, but anyway, so those are two very, you know, from a narrow granular aesthetic sense. Uh, and a kind of you know, maybe uh, uh, you know, macro sense in some sense, um, but, but I think it, it's sort of um, you know among the things you know little chestnuts or multiple chestnuts I kind of you know picked up and kind of hold dear from Jim March. Um, he would like to cite um, T. S. Eliot responding to a critic about the love song of J. F. Kufrick. And, and Eliot writes like, basically, whoa, you critic? Like, I would have never thought and given a bad invitation, but you know what, I'm grateful you read the poem and it meant something to you. And so, you know, Jim would offer that up in the context of you do the work and then it's public domain and, and kind of they, they, they have their own life and people construct meaning around it or, or they construct no meaning and it's kind of, but so, and maybe it's my own pathology, but I'm actually fairly emotionally detached from, from the work. Uh, and that's, I think, I've ways to find it, but it also, you know, I can see weakness of it. You know, I had a funny exchange, I, I rambled too much, but I'm um, uh, work awards, so a relatively recent PhD student. So we did this um, paper, and in that extra core of that exercise was my realization of the fundamental weakness in the NK enterprise about how it thought out. It's like, it did not capture what Simon was talking about near the composed system. And it was so funny in the review process because the first two rounds, it's like, Leventhal has done this. It did not modularity. Like, why are you being so outrageous and sacrilegious? Like, you know, like, look, I like Leventhal 97. I like the stuff he did with Andrews too. But you know what? In retrospect, I see a real problem here. Uh, and this work is actually addressing what I think is a really fundamental misunderstanding about what nearly decomposable system has not been captured by that line of work. And finally, on the third revision, 
uh, Magic and I were able to convince them uh, that there actually was a really basic weakness uh, in this earlier work by Leventhal. And like, <laughs> you know, I like that work. I can also see like, whoa, you really kind of missed miss something. Uh, so, you know, it's a beloved child, but it's like, you know, our children are imperfect. We still love them. Uh, so, yeah. But I think that's also healthy if one is going to have a long productive career, uh, you know, not to get too enamored of, of the magic of any particular prior work and like, it's limited. I could have done more on, on, on all that stuff, you know. Uh, so whether I or somebody else does the more, that's, 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 that's great. So I'm actually going to, since we are talking about um, I know there was a question in the chat from uh, uh, Hui Sun about like modeling and you want to just ask that question since we're talking about modeling. Uh, yeah, sure. So thanks a lot for sharing the experience and insights. Uh, I'll just read a question. So uh, the first question is given the close connection between the organizational learning models we develop in our fields and the vast repertoire of reinforcement learning models in the artificial intelligence world. Do you think the two fields could benefit from more conversations in the future? And if I may ask, like in what direction do you think they will connect more? Yeah, so um, I mean, it's a really interesting question, but it's, and it's also interesting, I think, to sort of put it in historical context. Um, so in the beginning, you know, AI and organization third, uh, theory and or, or learning, you know, have a, a kind of joint birth as it were. Okay, so you know, Ed Feigenbaum is contributing to the behavioral theory of the firm and then becomes a kind of pioneer in computer science and knowledge-based engineering. So the sort of, you know, protocol analysis, the if-then rule, you know, that's sort of a touchstone of early AI. Now, you know, conceptually in the late 70s, and but it wasn't until relatively recently with both bigger data and fast machines, you know, with the neural nets and sort of the modern reinforcement learning, but, but you also have, you know, intermediate between those. And so, you know, as a PhD 